We're in the book of Galatians. Uh, just a little bit of a recap on chapter 1. Uh, Paul starts out this book uh, not so much like a lot of the other books that he has written, uh, epistles that he has written, and there's a lot of niceties usually in the beginning, you know, as he's greeting and that kind of thing, but he's on a fast pace to get to where he wants to get to. There's a problem there in the churches in Galatia. Remember, we talked about it. It's not a church. It is a bunch of churches, a number of churches. I didn't say a bunch, but a number of churches in the area of Galatia. And, um, and so he's writing this epistle, and it'll, it'll be a general epistle that will go out to all the churches. It'll be passed around and read. And, and the problem that they had there is that there were Judaizers that were coming in behind Paul as he would lead these Gentiles to faith. And they would come in and they would begin to um, really uh, tell everybody, well, now that you've accepted Jesus, what you have to do is you have to be circumcised. You have to be circumcised. You have to observe the law. You have to observe the various feasts and moons and the Sabbath and all these different things. And Paul in response to that, writes this epistle to set everything straight. And so in the first couple of chapters, what Paul does is he states his case about uh, what he has done, what the Lord has done in him and through him, and uh, he presents that in a very emphatic way, answering also the critics that he had, the uh, Judaizers, they were there, they were saying that Paul really wasn't you know, one of the true apostles. Uh, and so therefore, you know, uh, he didn't know what he was talking about. And so Paul is setting them straight and letting them know that even though he is not like the other apostles in that he did not walk with Jesus when he was here on earth, that he personally interacted with Christ after his conversion and spent a number of years basically being discipled, tutored by Christ himself. And we see that in a number of his epistles, uh, this one and also uh, in 1 Corinthians, that Paul makes it very clear that it was the Lord himself who told him these things. And he spent quite a bit of time going through the scriptures and the Lord revealing to him the truths that were there, that, were, that was the mystery of the gospel. In other words, it was that thing that was hidden, even though it was there, it was hidden. And, and once he had accepted Christ, then all the scriptures that he knew began to make sense, and he began to pull it all in. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, Paul is the only educated apostle. All the rest of them were not. Now, that, that's not a slam against those that are not. I'm not educated either. You can tell that by the way I talk. I mispronounce things, make up words, and say things out of order all the time. So it's very obvious. I'm not an educated man. But uh, Paul was that man. We talked about this last week, about what the perfect guy for God to call. You know, when you think about his knowledge about the word, you know, and, and the memory that that guy must have had to, to know all these things that were there when we find it difficult to memorize scripture when we have it numbered and you know broken up into chapters and verses and and books right in his day it was scrolls but yet he knew the word of god and and so he was unique in that sense that that god had appointed him to this and so he's defending himself in chapter one he's telling them that, that he was not uh, he says that Paul, an apostle, not from men or through men. It was through Jesus Christ himself. And so he's making his point to these critics that, uh, that, that it wasn't that men appointed him because one of the other problems that they had is that he had not come and sat under the other apostles. And so Paul makes it very clear that it was not by man but by God himself uh, also, uh, Paul begins there in that chapter 
to lay out for them once again the gospel there in verse 4 where he says, who gave himself, speaking of Jesus, for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father. So Paul is reestablishing, if you will, the very gospel that he had presented to them when a little bit farther down in this chapter, then he begins to tell them, he says, if anybody comes to you with another gospel than what I gave to you, let them be accursed. And he says, and I tell you again, if anybody comes to you with another gospel, let them be anathema, accursed. Because there were those that were coming in with a different gospel. And any time you add something more than that simple message of that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works lest any man should boast. Anytime you add anything to that, I don't care what it is, it is a different gospel. Because that is the one and only true gospel. And so Paul is establishing that with them. And uh, he goes on to tell them uh, that he is amazed that so quickly that they were turning to this other gospel, that they were turning away from what he had presented to them to the gospel of uh, grace plus works. Now the Judaizers will see in the next chapter, in chapter 2, Paul speaks of them, and these were not these were not believers. These were guys who were coming in with the purpose of undermining the work that was going on. That they themselves did not believe in Christ, but that they were their purpose was to come in by stealth and to undermine the work that God was doing. And uh, so anyways, uh, he'll, he'll tell them about that too, but he says, I'm amazed that so quickly that you would turn away from the grace because that message of grace is such a wonderful message that there's nothing that I can do and even more importantly, there is nothing that I have to do in order to have salvation except for to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, believe in the finished work that he had accomplished and put my faith and trust in that and that's all I have to do. Now. That sounds simple, and it sounds easy, and there are those that, that try to cheapen that and to say that I can, I can make that decision, but now I can live however I want to. Well, Paul will make sure that we understand in this particular epistle that that's not the case. There is a, a responsibility that we have to moral law. Even though we are not saved by adhering to the law, there's a responsibility that we have to that. Uh, to, to keep that law. Uh, you know, it's real simple. I mean, I, think, I don't think any Christian would argue with the fact that to kill someone is wrong. Well, how do we know that? You think that it's in us somewhere that we just think that it's not right to kill a man? Matter of fact, if God didn't tell us it wasn't right to kill a man, just think of how bad it would be now. We already have such a disregard for life that just think of how much worse it would be if that indeed was not given to us. So there is a moral responsibility that we have. And um, he concluded that chapter there in chapter 1 with that, that whole thing where he says in verse 23, but they were hearing only speaking of those who were of the churches there in Judea, that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And, uh, and they glorified God in me. And so uh, Paul uh, lets us know that there was a change in him that was apparent to all and that they could see it uh, and that this was the testimony that was going out. Then we get over into chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. So to Paul, the, the, his spiritual liberty in Christ was worth more, far more than popularity or even security. He was willing to fight for that liberty. And uh, he goes right for it as he begins in this epistle. Paul's first fight for Christian liberty was at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. 
Um, and then the second one here, uh, and it was at a private meeting with Peter, and we'll see that in chapter 11, verses, or chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Had Paul been unwilling to wage this spiritual warfare, the church in the first century might have become only a Jewish sect, preaching a mixture of law and grace. But because of Paul's courage, the gospel was kept free from legalism and was carried to the Gentiles with great blessing. Uh, to get some insight as to what was going on here, let's go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 15 real quick. We're going to read that whole chapter. It says in verse 1, And certain men came down from Judea taught, and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all, uh, uh, to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in that same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God had first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return and, I am, and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send the chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also, surname, uh, also named Barsabas, uh, and Silas, led, uh, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Cecilia, uh, uh, Cecilia, no, that's not it, we'll move on, Cilicia, thank you, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such command, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. 
men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So that, that really is um, an important part of where we're at here in the book of Galatians. Because it's where Paul is working from, is that, that, uh, that gathering that they had there, and those things that were determined. And so Paul, who is one of our characters, if you will, in this, in this setting, um, and we know him as the apostle to the Gentile, and Paul's going to make reference to that here in this chapter, that he is the apostle to the Gentiles, and that Peter is the apostle to the Jews. And um, Barnabas it was one of Paul's closest friends. In fact, when Paul tried to get into the fellowship at, of the Jerusalem church, it was Barnabas who opened the way for him. And uh, it was also Barnabas when he found out that all these Gentiles were getting saved, up, they, they were responding to the gospel up there in Antioch, he went and he got Paul, and he brought Paul up there to Antioch. Because this was like right up Paul's alley. Because of the fact that Paul, he was a... Um, <laughs> uh, he's a Jew that was uh, Hellenized. He was a Hellenized Jew. And it's an interesting thing. I was thinking about this today. A Hellenized Jew is a Jew who is basically raised in the Greek Hellenistic culture, unlike other Jews that are raised in Israel, in Jerusalem, that would have nothing to do with that culture. And, and it's interesting to me the zeal that Paul had, uh, first of all, as, as a Pharisee, but then when the church came along, his zeal to persecute the church and all of that. I wonder how much of that zeal was because of the fact that he was a Hellenistic Jew and not a Jew born in Israel. Always having to prove himself to be a little bit more zealous than the next guy because he wasn't quite up to the standard because Jews that were raised in Israel, and especially those who were raised in Jerusalem, and it's no different today, they look down their nose at other Jews that are not of that same category. They believe that they were better because they were born there. And, uh, and they were never tainted, if you will, by living in that Greek Hellenistic culture. But Barnabas... When that started happening up there at Antioch, he knew that, the, and Barnabas also was a Hellenistic Jew. And so he goes and he gets Paul and he brings him up to Antioch, man, and they have this great ministry that they do up there with the Gentiles in Antioch. Barnabas became very close friends with, uh, with Paul. I guess as close a friend as you could get to be to Paul. I don't know. It didn't seem like... He was one of those kind of guys you could get real close to. But nonetheless, they did have a good relationship at one time. The name Barnabas means son of encouragement. And you will always find Barnabas encouraging somebody. When you look through the scriptures, you're going to find that this is one of his characteristics. And when the gospel came to the Gentiles in Antioch, it was Barnabas who was sent to encourage them in their faith. When they heard about it, the church 
in Jerusalem sent him up there to encourage them in their faith. And then, like I said, while he's up there, he goes, he sends for Paul and said, Paul, you got to come up here and be a part of this. From the earliest days, Barnabas was associated with the Gentile believers. It was Barnabas who enlisted Paul to help minister to the church in Antioch, like I said. And the two of them worked together, not only in teaching, but also in helping the poor. You find that in Acts chapter 11. Barnabas accompanied Paul on his first missionary trip and had seen God's blessing on the gospel that they preached. It's worth noting that it was Barnabas who encouraged young John Mark after he had dropped out of the ministry and incurred the displeasure of Paul. That's one of those, those things in the scriptures that uh, I, I really wonder about. Here you had two very strong believers in Christ that, uh, that could not, they, they split over the issue of bringing someone else with them that one felt was not quite up to snuff as the other. And, and it, we, never, it, we do see that Paul reconciles with John Mark eventually, right? I mean, um, it was in uh, Colossians 4.10 and, and also 2 Timothy 4.11 that Paul was able to commend Mark uh, and benefit from his friendship. But also, one of my favorite books, Philemon, uh, chap uh, chapter 1, there's only one chapter, by the way, uh, 23 and 24, it says, where Paul makes mention of this, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greet you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. And that shows that Paul had gotten to that place in his heart where he had reconciled with Mark. And that's why Philemon is one of my favorite epistles. Because I think that you see a, a matured, changed Paul, apostle, Paul. And one that had come to a place where he realized that those kind of things, to argue and to have divisions with brothers and sisters over things that are really meaningless, uh, it's not worth it. And he had come to a place where he was able to reconcile with John Mark. And so th that's, a, that's a blessing to me. And it's also where I always drop in my little... My little plug for Peter and Paul, it's a movie that uh, CBS produced. So when you watch it, uh, don't expect it to be exactly uh, biblical or, you know, scriptural. But it's the story of Peter and Paul and uh, Anthony Hopkins plays the Apostle Paul. And I cannot help but think of his portrayal of Paul every time I think of the Apostle Paul. And it, it shows a man who in the beginning, man, I mean, he was a firecracker, you know. He was a spitfire. But by the time he had come to his life, he had mellowed out. You know, he had gotten to the point where he was much easier to get along with. And, you know, it seemed to care more for people, that, you know, not just the passion that he had, you know, for the gospel. Uh, anyways, I, I recommend it. But with that caveat, don't expect it to be to follow the scriptures exactly. But it's, it's a good movie. Anyways. Which is interesting, my wife just, uh, Peter and Paul. And my wife told me that uh, I guess of some recent time, Anthony Hopkins has accepted Christ, which I wasn't aware of that. I certainly hope that's true. Lord knows he played enough guys that was close enough to, toward Christ that he knows anyhow, right? Yeah. So... So there were three, uh, three men that were pillars uh, of the church in Jerusalem. Peter, John, and James, uh, the brother of the Lord, uh, who must not be confused with the apostle James, who was killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. Peter, we know from his prominent part in the accounts in the Gospels, as well as in the first half of the book of Acts, it was to Peter uh, that Jesus said that he gave him the keys of the kingdom. And so that was, was he who was involved in opening the door of faith to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. John, we also know from the gospel records as one of Christ's inner three, uh, inner three apostles. 
associated with Peter in the ministry of the word in Acts chapter 3, 1 and following. It is James is who we need to probably give a little better introduction. And the gospel record indicates that Mary and Joseph had other children and James was among them. Um, and of course, Jesus was born by the power of the Spirit and not through natural generation. Uh, but he had other brothers that were, and uh, they were uh, natural born by Joseph and Mary. Um, but they did not believe in him uh, during his earthly ministry. Uh, but here's the thing uh, his brethren associated with the believers in the early church. Paul informs us that the risen Christ appeared to James and this was the turning point in his life. Uh, James was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He was also the writer of the epistle of James and uh, that letter plus Acts 21 would suggest that he was, a very, was very Jewish in his, his thinking. It's kind of an interesting book, James is. Uh, there are those who uh, felt that it never should have been included in the canon of scripture. Uh, and my personal opinion is because they, they really did not look at it uh, correctly. Along with these men and the apostles and the elders were a group of false brethren who infiltrated the meetings and tried to rob the believers of their liberty in Christ. And we'll see that here in verse 4 in just a moment. Undoubtedly, these were some of the Judaizers who had followed Paul in church after church and had tried to capture his converts. The fact that Paul calls them false brethren indicates that they were not true Christians, but were only masquerading as such so they could capture uh, the the, the converts to themselves. So that gives us the, the list of individuals that are involved here. And we bring up Barnabas, of course, because he'll be spoken of here in a little bit. And so will Peter, as Paul will confront them uh, both because of their turning back to the law away from grace in the presence of the people, the Gentiles in the church there in uh, the area of Antioch and uh, around there. So in verse 2, Paul, once again, defending his, his um, apostleship, defending his knowledge of the gospel and his relationship with Christ, he says in verse 2, I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So Paul says that through revelation of the Lord, that he went up to Jerusalem and uh, he communicated to the church there in Jerusalem, the elders there, uh, what gospel he was presenting to the Gentiles. Because the Judaizers were saying that Paul was also preaching a different gospel. Paul makes it very clear. I've given you the true gospel, and I can't believe that you're turning so quickly to another gospel, which is to incorporate works into the whole idea of grace. So, like I said, he went because God directed him to, not because the Jerusalem leaders had summoned him or called him on the carpet for preaching to the Gentiles. Paul seized this opportunity to consult with the other apostles privately concerning the message he was preaching to the Gentiles. And this does not mean that Paul sought their approval of its truth and accuracy, for he had received the gospel from God by revelation. <clears throat> Rather, he wanted them to consider its relationship uh, to the gospel they were proclaiming. In other words, comparing what he was saying to what they were saying as well. But if the Jerusalem leaders insisted on circumcision and other requirements of the law for Gentile converts, Paul's labor would be running uh, in vain among the Gentiles. It was not that the apostle had any doubts. It was not that the apostle had any uh, misgivings about the gospel he had preached for 14 years, as we see here 
in uh, Galatians 2.1, uh, but that he feared that his past and present ministry might be hindered or rendered of no effect by the Judaizers. Verse 3, it says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, uh, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So it seems that Titus was the test case uh, at this point. He was a Gentile Christian who had never submitted to circumcision. Yet it was clear to all that it was clear to all that he was genuinely saved. And now, if the Judaizers were right, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. If they were right, as we saw in Acts 15:1, then Titus was not a saved man, but he was a saved man and gave evidence of having the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Judaizers were wrong in what they had said. Titus, uh, it's interesting because we've just recently gone through 1 Timothy and, and Titus both, and we took note of the fact the differences in personality between uh, Timothy and Titus. Uh, Timothy was timid, uh, and Paul was constantly having to encourage him, you know, don't, don't let them, you know, uh, reject you because of your age, because you're so young, you know. Don't let them despise your youth and constantly encourage him. With Titus, it was the other way around. Go over there and you tell them. You tell those Cretans what they need to have. And he had that kind of personality, he had a strong personality, so uh, it doesn't seem... Uh, I can understand why Paul would bring Titus, in other words, because of the character that he had, the, the strong individual that he was, that he would not yield to them and buckle under the pressure. In verse 4, and this occurred because of the false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So they wanted to bring believers back into the bondage to enslave them into the laws, rules, and ceremonies. Specifically, they strongly insisted that Titus be circumcised. We see that in Acts 20 and verse 29. It says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you uh, and not sparing the flock. And certainly that is the greatest threat to the body of Christ. It's not the threat from without. That's not the greatest threat that we have. It is that from within. Those that would come in to destroy the work of grace, those that would try to add to it, those that would try to give us a different gospel or a strange gospel. And boy, in today, uh, you can find a myriad of different things that are going on in the church that challenge true orthodoxy, true sound doctrine, you know, and it's becoming more and more prevalent in the days in which we're living. And I venture to say, I think there's coming a point in time that um, the words of my, uh, the guy that was leading the school that I was in down in Southern California at our orientation when he said there would be a day that those who believe in the scriptures being the inerrant word of God and true, and that you can believe them for what they say would become dinosaurs, and we are certainly becoming that. Verse 5, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So Paul stood absolutely firm because of the truth of the, because the truth of the gospel was at stake for the Galatians and for the entire Christian church. I think we have to you know, take uh, to think about the fact that if Paul had not done that, where would the church be today? What kind of a church would we would we be in today? Um, if it wasn't for the fact that he was so tenacious about this very fact, and and rightfully so. I mean, this is this is absolutely true doctrine, right? Um, he stood firm. To impose circumcision on Titus would be to deny that salvation was by faith alone and to affirm that in, that in addition to faith, there must be obedience to the law for acceptance before God. Thus, the basic issue of the gospel was involved, and Paul would not deviate or yield even for a moment. He would not. I don't know. Not, we did not yield submission, not even for an hour. Verse 6, but... 
From those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows pers uh, personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Paul resumed the narrative relating to his, his, his conference with the apostles in Jerusalem and declared that they added nothing to his message. And I think this is what we have to understand. Paul is saying that there was nothing that they had that they were doing that was any different than what I was doing. And it wasn't a slap in the face to them that and they, they're nothing to me. You know, they mean nothing to me. They're, you know, they're, they're no better than I am. That's not the attitude that Paul has here. It is that, that they added nothing to that message, the gospel that they were giving. They didn't add that you had to be circumcised or that you had to keep the law. They did not correct or modify Paul's message, by, but recognized its divine source and affirmed its truth and completeness. But why did the apostle speak in what appears to be that derogatory manner about some of the Jerusalem leaders? In verse 2, he referred to them as those who seemed to be leaders. In verse 6, he described them as those who seemed to be important. And in verse 9, he finally named James, Peter, and John as those reputed uh, to be pillars. In view of the fact that Paul's purpose in his message was to emphasize his unity with the apostles, it seems best to explain these allusions as stemming from the fact that the, Juda that the Judaizers, in order to disparage Paul, had made much of the Jerusalem leaders. In other words, comparing them to him in their, their trying to tear down what Paul was doing. And Paul is simply saying, look, no, I, we're, we're equals here. We're all in this same boat that we have here. While there may be irony in Paul's expressions, he declared that he was not awed, or awed by the past or present stations of James, Peter, and John. And indeed, they endorsed Paul's message and received him as an equal. In verse 7, it says, But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for circumcision was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. In other words, he's saying that same Holy Spirit was working both in me and Peter, me toward the Gentiles and Peter, toward the Jews. Now, <clears throat> it doesn't mean that there isn't some kind of crossover there. We know that everywhere that Paul went, where's the first place he went to? He went to the synagogue. He preached the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So it wasn't that Paul did not try to reach Jews or minister to Jews. That's not the point at all. But he certainly, his ministry was toward the Gentiles and he had the most effect and power and, uh, and fruit from the Gentiles as he presented it. And the same thing with Peter. He also preached to the Gentiles too. Remember, he's the first one that went to the Gentiles, right? You remember when he had gone down to Simon the Tanner's and the vision, you know, the sheet that was let down and God tells him to go with Cornelius and tell him the he tells them the gospel. And when he does, the Holy Spirit is poured out to him. It's the very thing that Peter had spoke of when we were there in chapter 15 when Peter was making his defense. He says, when he had come back, the, the church was kind of upset with him that he had given the gospel to the Gentiles. And then Peter, he explains to him, he said, look, he says, these people, the Holy Spirit descended upon them just like the Holy Spirit did upon us. How can we deny that this is God's work? It's what he's doing. And so Peter convinces them. And as a matter of fact, I think it's a great prelude to chapter 15 there when Paul comes that when they're making these defenses about the Spirit of God working amongst the Gentiles, that, that God doesn't expect them to be Jews, but that there's a work that God is doing. He has, he has made them pure and, and acceptable in his sight, as he told Peter that they, they no longer were considered unclean. And so all this was being set up so that, that the work could continue on, that Paul could continue to minister among the Gentiles, and, and he certainly uh, does quite well. 
James, Peter, and John recognized that Paul had been divinely commissioned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had to the Jews. Thus Paul jolted the Judaist uh, by declaring that the leaders in Jerusalem approved of his mission to the Gentiles. It was the same gospel preached by Peter and Paul, the gospel of uncircumcision and the gospel of, uh, of circumcision. There was one gospel, uh, though it was preached by different apostles to two distinct groups of people. The reason the apostles concluded that Paul's commission was equal to Peter's was the fact that God gave success to both as they preached. Uh, you know, it is, it is a very interesting thing to, to look at the first century church and, and to see the direction that it took. You realize that the first century church did not abandon going to the temple, nor did they abandon going to synagogues. And Jews still you know, held to Judaism to the degree that the promises of God that they had received didn't change. You know, they had been given the, the promise of land and seed. That wasn't going to change. And so they continued in those things. But what they did do is they believed for their salvation, not by the works of the law, but by faith, through faith and grace through faith. And they no longer trusted in the law as being their avenue to which they would go, you know, to be able to be, uh, to come in front of the Lord. So... They, they definitely continued in that for quite some time up until the destruction of the temple. And then after that, there actually was a shift you began to see in church history to where it became more and more, uh, more and more Gentile and less and less Jew. But there's always been a remnant of the Jews within the church, always. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the guys that, that I enjoy reading on the Old Testament is uh, Alfred Edersheim. Uh, Alfred Edersheim was a Messianic Jew, uh, and he's got some really good insight to Jewish life, customs, uh, and history. Uh, so I really appreciate him a great deal. But uh, he was a Jew who became a Christian and ultimately became a theologian, uh, a Christian theologian. So God has always had his remnant. In verse 9, it says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So this was sealed by James, Peter, and John in their extending to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So in front of the whole church, this is, this is a sign that the church is saying we accept what they are doing as being the right thing to do. That right hand of fellowship meant that there, there's no division there. There's, we're on the same page. The difference is, is they're ministering to Gentiles, which is totally okay. And the only thing that we ask is they don't eat, you know, don't drink blood, don't eat things that are strangled, you know, and, you know, this kind of thing. And, and to give to the poor, the thing that Paul will say later, the very thing that I wanted to do, right? Uh, and, and so as long as they're doing that, they didn't have to keep the law. They didn't have to be circumcised and obey the, uh, the laws of the Old Testament. And we'll talk about that a whole lot more a little bit later. But um, the fact is, is that this right end of fellowship was a clear sign to everyone who would have seen it that the answer was, that the Jews or that the, the Gentiles did not have to become Jews by being circumcised and keeping the law, and so um, and it would in it would they would have that endorsement and in the division uh, between the church in Jerusalem and the other churches that are being established uh, throughout the rest of the world. Um, It was an indication to all present that they endorsed the labor that was going on through the apostles and through Paul and Barnabas out there, and that Paul was entrusted to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. 
And like I said earlier, this is very important because you have Peter and James and John standing in front of the church, all extending that hand of uh, right hand of fellowship. Um, and to show you the significance of it, these, these four guys, Peter, James, John, um, and uh, who am I forgetting? Uh, Peter, James, John, and Paul, yes. Those four guys, depending on whether or not you believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, wrote 22 of the New Testament books. That's how important this was, that they were all together on the same page and pulling in the same direction because they were going to be the ones that were really going to set the course for the whole church from that point on because they would be the writers of the New Testament, which we have today. Thank you, Lord, <clears throat> that we have that, right? Uh, when you, you think about the church and so many times the different things that are going on, how do we know what's right and what's wrong? How do we know in the church today what's right and what's wrong? The Bible, exactly. The New Testament in particular as well. You know, it, I, think, I think the Lord, for the mess that the New Testament church was in, because they dealt with all these different issues and, and they wrote it all down and so now we know what to do when those issues come up. How do we know what to do when someone begins to be uh, taken away off to what, it, being brought into a works-driven relationship with God? Well, how do we know that's wrong? Well, the scriptures tell us that it's wrong. And, and it's, not, it's not because it's my opinion you know, it's not that, you know, Paul's got his opinion about it. I got my opinion about it. And no, we come together in the word of God and we say, okay, this is, this is how we know this is not right. And this is definitely one of the problems in the church today is we're getting further, further, excuse me, away from that being our rule. Settling issues that are going on in the church by the word of God. Now it's becoming more uh, by how we feel, how we think, how we, how the, what the culture says and how things are going. Rather than coming back to what God's word says. These four guys coming together in unity like this is what has set the foundation for us as churches to have the tools that we have in order to be able to right the wrongs that are in the church today. Now... Now, granted, there are, there are things that go on that you may not find a scripture for, right? If you have a, a pastor that wears skinny jeans, there's no scripture that says that he can't, right? Uh, if you have one that wears baggy jeans, you can't find a scripture where it says he can't either. You know, so, there, I mean, there's, there's not things like that. But when it comes to doctrinal issues pertaining to, uh, you know, salvation, Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works and all these different doctrines that are handed down to the church, we turn to the Word of God because uh, there, are, there are a hundred different things that are out there on any particular subject. Even this one, I didn't address it, but when it speaks of um, Paul having one gospel and Peter having another, there are those that teach that there's two separate Gospels, the Gospel of Paul and the Gospel of Peter. And the interesting thing is, and they use this scripture, and I don't know how they could come to that conclusion. When you read this book, what Paul is making very clear is that there is not two different Gospels. There's only one. But yet you can find people out there that teach that, that there's two different Gospels. Peter had one and Paul had one. And that there's a different gospel for the Jew and a different gospel for the Gentile. That's not true. It's the same gospel message. It doesn't matter. It, it, you, you boil it all down at the very core of it all. It is grace through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's Gentile or gospel, gospel. It doesn't matter. But there's so much stuff that's out there, this river of information that is out there today at our fingertips where we can just go and find somebody that we agree with and uh, rather than finding what does the word say basing our uh, doctrine our thoughts our worldview on what the scripture says 
rather than just on what all the latest and the greatest guy that's out there has to say. You see, uh, these guys were standing here, closing ranks and saying, we are in unity, and that is why we are here today as well. We are to stand up today for the gospel. And that unity is based on truth, and we never sacrifice truth for unity, even though there are those that are out there today that are willing to sacrifice truth for the sake of what they call unity. And if you're not unifying on the scripture and as some other kind of idea or cultural aspect, and, it's, and you have to let go of the scripture in order to do that, then that's where you err. You know, I have in mind, in particular in the church today, there are many churches who are beginning to bend toward the acceptance of homosexual lifestyle as being okay in the sight of God. And the only thing I can say is, if you can show me a chapter and verse where it recants what God has to say about homosexuality, then I'll be more than happy to agree with you. But you cannot. And it's the same thing, and I'd always like to make sure that we understand, it's the same thing about any sexual sin, fornication, anything like that. It is not acceptable in the sight of God. He looks at it all, and he doesn't expect a church to openly accept fornication, homosexuality, transgenderism, and you can go down the list. There's nothing that says in the scripture that we are to compromise the truth of God's word in order to be able to get along with everybody. Because I can guarantee you, you're never going to get along with everybody, and especially if you stand upon the word of God. In verse 10, it says, And they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. And I, in Acts chapter 15, verse 28 and 29, the New Living Translation says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood, or eat the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. There's my cue, I guess. Huh? So, Paul is in that place where he is... He is making his case for where he is and what he stands upon. And we'll see. He'll finish, he'll finish that up in the remainder of chapter 2. Uh, and we'll get into that this next week uh, as he confronts Peter and Barnabas, uh, you know, and while they're there in Antioch. And, and how uh, even they were convinced to compromise on what they knew was the truth. And how important it is that we make sure that we do not compromise the truth. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for this epistle. And I pray that you would strengthen us in it as we study it together. Pray, God, that you would go before us now. And, Lord, that you would put people in our path that we could share the hope of the gospel, the very thing that we've been talking about. That, that opportunity to have sins forgiven and to be uh, eternally uh, united with you, Lord. We pray, God, put that message in our heart and let us take it out to the world in which we live in, Lord. A dark world, a dying world, and one that needs to hear the hope of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for this. We love you so much, and we commit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right.